This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, how progressive taxation can fix the most upside-down tax structure in America. Washington State's tax system is broken, and Representative Noelle Frame has devoted much of her time in the state legislature to fixing it. In her capacity as the newly appointed chair of the House Finance Committee, she joins us to talk about the history of our tax system and about a number of legislative cures, including a brand new wealth tax aimed at making our state's 100 billionaires pay their fair share. That's ahead. We know that Washington has the most regressive tax structure in the nation. People who make less money pay a greater percentage of our state taxes. We also know that there's been a very limited success in changing that dynamic in any substantive way. But our friend, Representative Noel Frame, was recently appointed as the chair of the House Finance Committee. And she is here to talk about how we can do progressive taxation and to tell us about a frankly very exciting new wealth tax bill that she has just introduced. Representative Frame, hello. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me here today. Much appreciated. I have to say, first and foremost, congratulations on your appointment as chair of the Finance Committee. I know that this is very much your wheelhouse, uh, and it's also a very momentous time in our state's history to be in that position. Yeah, I'm pretty excited to serve. I have an incredible committee of colleagues, and uh, it's been pretty exciting so far. So thank you for the congratulations. So. I want to talk about your wealth tax bill and about progressive revenue generally. And I also want to talk about your tax structure working group. But let's just kind of start from brass tax here. Where does the bulk of our state revenue currently come from and who pays what? Yeah, great question. So Washington state um, is heavily uh, reliant upon sales tax. So in um, fiscal year 2020, uh, we had 45% of state revenue come from sales tax. Um, And we'll get into it a little bit more, but um, sales tax uh, is disproportionately paid by low-income people as a share of their income. Uh, So that's a big one. Uh, The property tax, uh, which is uh, almost entirely real property today, but also some personal property or tangible personal property on the business side, that's 14%. Uh, The business and occupation tax, uh, our main gross receipts tax for business, which is in and of itself regressive. Uh, represents another 17%. And then there's a myriad of other taxes, sin taxes and others that fill out the the remainder. So those are our three big forces in the state's tax code. So let's talk about why this ultimately is regressive. I think a lot of people know that we have a regressive tax system, but they may not know why it's regressive and they may not know the history of it. What can you tell us about that? Yeah. So for folks that aren't familiar with the term regressive, what we really mean by that term is that it is Uh, And as it applies to the tax structure, is that the tax structure disproportionately depends on low and middle income families and small and startup and low margin businesses for our revenue. Um, So when you think about, you know, the spending of a typical household um, and they're spending, you know, on regular everyday things, but you match that up against the total income that they have, when you're hitting all of those transactions with sales tax, it adds up pretty quickly. We've done some good things in the tax code. For instance, we do not subject food to sales tax. And that was a good broad-based step towards making the code a little less regressive. Uh, But we still have uh, quite a series of sales and excise taxes um, that hit those lowest income households the hardest. And historically, you know, even in our constitution, there is something called the uniformity clause. uh, And people reference this as being an impediment to progressive taxation. What is that clause and how does it impact our, our taxation? You got it. And so this is a good moment to kind of take a a walk back in history a little bit. So 
Um, back in the uh, Depression, um, we had Washington State uh, had, had property taxes was sort of the main uh, source of revenue for the state at that time. It predates our series of excise taxes and B&O. Property taxes had gotten really, really high. Um, the people of Washington State wanted an alternative. Uh, the Grange actually led the charge to have a progressive income tax, uh, and it won on the ballot. It was adopted by the people, a progressive income tax. And what we mean by progressive is a graduated rate that changed based on uh, income level. And when you mention the Grange, uh, can you clarify that? Uh, the Grange is a, a, a very long-standing historical organization uh, representing mostly farmers. So it's sort of interesting to think about farmers in Washington State uh, back in the Depression era who were suffering under really high property taxes, uh, were looking for an alternative uh, and helped to lead the charge on a progressive income tax, won on the ballot, but then was challenged, went up to our state Supreme Court, and the state Supreme Court says, you know, we have this clause that says all property must be taxed uniformly, and graduated rates uh, violate that uniformity clause. And so they struck that down. Now, I think what's interesting is people often talk about, well, I know we'll talk about income tax in a minute, that people often say, you know, income tax is unconstitutional, uh, but what they actually mean is a graduated income tax um, is unconstitutional. So you have to have flat rates. Understood. Okay. And I will just mention for people that we are only one of nine states that doesn't have an income tax. Maybe you can shed a little light as to why we don't have one. Yeah. And I think that um, since that um, Supreme Court decision in the 30s, you know, the, the state, you know, basically had to scramble and figure out what they were going to do instead. And so we set up our series of excise tax sales and other excise taxes and this business and occupation tax, which I kid you not, when it was passed uh, in the mid 30s as part of the I think it was part of the Revenue Act of 1934. It was supposed to be a, quote, temporary tax. Uh, and we still have it in the year 2021. <laughs> wow. So the gross receipts tax is a super weird way uh, to do a business taxation. But I think over time, there's been repeated attempts to bring it back at a flat rate. And I just, I think a flat rate income tax just has not uh, maybe been as appealing as that graduated income tax rate was back in the 30s. Um, and after a while, people just stopped trying. So I think that that's probably the best summation of history I can give you there. Um, but it does. It's interesting that you know what the actual history was of how it was attempted in the first place. I appreciate it. And I, I appreciate your wealth of knowledge on the subject. And in fact, I know that this is very much a passion of yours. It's kind of your origin story. But part of the reason why you ran for office was to, to address our, our tax yeah. structure. And uh, in 2019, you passed a bill that created what is called the Tax Structure Working Group. Can you tell us about this group and what it does? Yeah, so it actually goes back to 2017, um, and the House started it. Um, myself and now retired Republican Representative Terry Neely co-chaired that effort. We did a bit of a roadshow around the state, uh, met with uh, taxpayers, and particularly did a lot of outreach to small businesses uh, through economic development organizations in Yakima, Spokane, Vancouver, and Seattle, uh, and had public hearings about, like, do you like the tax code? If you don't like it, what would you change? Um, if you changed it? Um, you know, and it resulted in a loss of revenue, you know, how would you make that up? And, you know, through that process, one of the things that we heard really loud and clear, particularly from our smallest businesses, and again, low margin and new businesses, is that, you know, gross receipts, which means basically every dollar that comes through the door of a business, um, no, it with no regard to profitability, 
every dollar that comes through is subject to that B&O tax. And it's sort of this universally hated tax, bipartisan, bicameral hatred of the B&O tax. But nobody's ever really like buckled down to do the work of figuring out, if not the, the B&O tax, what? Um, you know, the B&O tax is the devil we know is sort of how the business community shared with me. And they asked, could we do um, as a next step some economic modeling and really think about what the potential alternatives could be? And so we did exactly that. And so when we renewed the group in 2019, we made it bicameral. We added the governor's office, the Department of Revenue, cities and counties, and um, embarked upon what was 18 months of economic modeling. And we have a report that just came out December 31st that summarizes all of that. And it includes uh, modeling seven, uh, not seven, several uh, replacement alternatives to the BNO as an example. Um, and imagine some other scenarios as well. I would love to hear about some of those, but I want to make sure that I understand what you're saying about the B&O tax. So basically what you're saying is that the taxes are levied by the gross amount uh, an organization makes as opposed to the net. Uh, am I getting that correct? Correct. And so is one of the recommendations to tax the, the net income as opposed to the gross? Yeah. And just to clarify, so the tax structure work group does not have any recommendations yet. It's We're still in that analysis phase. Oh, and so when we... Uh, did the economic modeling, we looked at three potential alternatives. One being a corporate income, aka a net receipts tax, which is what most states use. Um, another alternative is a margins tax, which is sort of a halfway point where it's kind of like the B&O, but you get to take one of maybe five major deductions like cost of goods sold or, or cost of labor or a standard deduction before the tax is then calculated. Uh, and then a third alternative, mostly used in Europe, not in the United States, um, which is a value-added tax, which basically sort of calcul calculates the value added at each step of the process as a sort of, it's best thought of uh, when you're thinking of products, um, that each step of the way that the product has had value add and you just tax on that incremental value added at each step of the process. So those are the three alternatives. But uh, no recommendations yet. The next stage is uh, large-scale public engagement. Uh, when we uh, are out of session this year, we will start that in a remote environment um, as we wait till the vaccine, uh, until we've got that herd immunity. Uh, and then when we get to uh, the fall, we hope that we'll be ready to do in-person engagement to have people react to some of the potential uh, alternative packages, uh, replacement uh, packages. And so. I suspect that you'll want to hear from the public when that happens, and, and we will uh, stay up with you on that and let people know when it's happening, for sure. I do want to talk about your wealth tax uh, bill. This is HB 1406. I will just say very candidly, this is a passionately written bill. Um, it's it's honestly more compellingly written than any bill that I've ever read before. And I'll have the text for people uh, in the show notes at indivisiblepodcast.org. Um, basically, you know, the upshot is we are home here in Washington to some of the world's wealthiest people. In fact, I believe Forbes magazine uh, determined that nine of the wealthiest people in the world actually live in our state. So what would this bill do and who specifically would it tax? You got it. So just to start, I want to make sure that I'm clear, too, that I wear two really different hats um, at the same time, and they sort of have different timelines. So I co-chaired the tax structure work group, which, again, is bipartisan, bicameral, and has multiple stakeholders. And there's this multi-year layered process, and we're at that. We've finished analysis, and now we're going towards public engagement. There's no recommendations yet. That's one hat I wear. Another hat I wear is, you know, as a legislator serving right now and as the chair of the House Finance Committee, where as part of my duties, I get to put forward good ideas for consideration. And so what I'm putting forward in this, uh, the Washington State Wealth Tax 
is what I'm hoping will be considered another potential tool in the toolbox. Um, my hope is that it will be given due consideration uh, in the tax structure work group. But to be clear, it's not a recommendation of the tax structure work group. I need to keep those two things very clear. Understood. Um, thank you. Um, so this legislation uh, says that right now in Washington state's tax code, I mentioned earlier that in terms of where our money comes from, about 14% of it is from property tax. Um, and that's mostly real property in a small section of uh, pers tangible personal property for businesses. What is entirely exempted from the tax code today is what we call intangible property. And so what this legislation uh, does is seeks to uh, modify that tax preference and narrow it to say, actually, we are going to assess a tax on financial intangible property, which is stocks, bonds, cash and cash equivalents, options, uh, interest in, you know, cap, chapter K, um, partnerships, et cetera. Um, and the way that I describe this to people, I know that's super technical, but if you think about property and how we build wealth in this country, for the middle class, the primary tool of wealth building for generations has been real property in one's own home, and we tax that. But what we don't do is we don't tax what are the tools of wealth building for literally billionaires, which is that financial intangible property, and so part of what I am suggesting here is equity and parity in the tax code by treating these two classes of property the same, um, and also bringing a tool into the toolbox um, of folks that are you know, sitting in excess of a billion dollars of wealth as a potential tool that could help us raise revenue and use it to do, you know, maybe do credits against taxes paid. For instance, there's a proposal called the Working Families Tax Credit that could be a good example of that. I'm happy to dive into that a little bit further. Mm -hmm. um, so that's sort of the high-level overview. I feel like I may have missed answering one of your specific questions, though. Well, so let, hit me again. No, it's cool. <laughs> we'll, we'll break this down. So the threshold for taxation, and basically what you're saying is, you know, what people of high net worth consider their entire portfolio as part of their net worth. They're not just thinking about property. And so what you're saying is, well, we're going to look at your entire net worth as well, right? And so the threshold of the net worth then would be a billion dollars. Am I getting that right? Correct. So anybody with a net worth less than $1 billion, this, this wealth tax, tax will not impact at all? Correct. Okay. And uh, I was struck by the number that we have 100 billionaires here in the state. It, were you surprised by that? Um, I, I'm floored. I am, I, I am truly astounded. Um, I knew that we had incredible wealth in the state. And as you mentioned earlier, like the Forbes list uh, pointing to uh, as many as seven of the world's wealthiest people uh, living in Washington state. And the way that they define that, by the way, I think by the Forbes list, you have to have had 2.8 billion uh, minimum wealth for at least three consecutive years. So by admission, that Forbes list is not all billionaires. It's just the world's biggest billionaires, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I think we all thought we knew about maybe, you know, a handful of billionaires. To hear that there are 100 in the state of Washington, um, it's just as I think really it just it's jaw dropping how much wealth we have in this state. And it's just particularly I think it is completely out of step with our values as a state that we would have a tax code that asks people making less than twenty five thousand dollars a year to pay 18 percent of their income in taxes. And we have some of the world's wealthiest human beings on the planet living in our state. And there's like a hundred of them. So to me, the, the goal of the wealth tax is as a tool in the toolbox to really finally bring equity to the tax code and make sure that all Washingtonians 
are sharing equitably in the responsibility of funding community priorities. You are being far more diplomatic in your language than I would be. <laughs> but I, I will just ask, how much would this wealth tax estimated bring in? Yeah, in the first year, which would be fiscal year 23, because we have to have some time for implementation, uh, that first year it would generate $2.25 billion per year. Repeat that number, please. Uh, $2.25 billion per year uh, at this threshold that we're talking about and a 1% rate. Uh, By comparison, when I mentioned property tax earlier, um, that 14% number I mentioned represents $3.6 billion. So you can see that the numbers are kind of on par uh, with like different classes of property. And we are choosing to, again, tax the tool of middle class wealth building in, in real property. But we are exempting the tool of, uh, middle, of wealth building for the ultra rich. Uh, and, and again, I think this brings equity by treating both classes of property the same. I completely agree with you. When do you anticipate hearings for this bill? So the bill is already scheduled for a hearing, actually, for next Tuesday, February 2nd, 1.30 p.m. Um, it's, it's a 1.30 p.m. meeting. We will actually hear two bills that day. Uh, we are also hearing um, the Working Families Tax Credit. And that bill uh, immediately will go first. So I really hope that people will tune in and um, watch the hearings for both bills. That number, just confirming, is House Bill uh, 1297. Again, that's the Working Families Tax Credit, and I'm just confirming that, but my computer's taking it a hot minute. Um, yes, House Bill 1297, Working Families Tax Credit, and that bill is modeled after the Federal Earned Income Tax Credit um, because that the EITC is uh, federal and is built off of an income tax because we don't have an income tax. The Working Families Tax Credit is intended to be a credit against tax paid, specifically sales tax, um, and really trying to be a tool of addressing inequity at the other end. So while these bills are not technically paired together, they're very intentionally, this is an example when I say that you could use some of the revenue generated from the wealth tax uh, for um, offering credits against uh, tax paid. This is one example of how you could do that. The bills that you're talking about, HB 1406 is the wealth tax bill, and then 1297 is the working family tax credit. And you can watch this on TVW, and I'll have links for people there as well. And in fact, uh, this year, you can watch everything online uh, because that's how the session is being done. Um, I want to get your thoughts on a few other progressive uh, revenue sources, potential ones. I think. Can I, people- can I add one thing? Of course. They can do more than watch. So they can actually participate remotely. Uh, and so if folks are interested in signing in and support to testify for these bills, they can actually testify and try to get on the list to testify in support of the bills. That's one way to participate. People can also sign in not wishing to testify if they don't actually want to get on camera uh, and make their pitch in you know, 60 to 120 seconds, however much time we have, but can sign in not wishing to testify just to log your official support for either one of these pieces of legislation. Um, in typical non-remote session, um, that's not an option. You usually have to be in Olympia to sign in, even not wishing to testify. So really hope folks will take us up on that. And I'm sure we can share that link as well. So we can. sorry for the interruption. But one- no, and in fact, I'm so glad that you brought that up because on this show, I'm constantly trying to drive people to action. And what you talked about there is so, so, so important. Um, citizen activism and involvement in our legislature, uh, I, I just can't stress enough uh, how much this show is is devoted to fostering that sort of thing. So I, I want to do uh, talk about some potential other progressive revenue sources that I know are on the table. I know that a lot of people are very hopeful about capital gains. Uh, I should mention that, again, 
we are only one of nine states in the nation that does not have a capital gains tax. What can you tell us about your thoughts uh, on this year's capital gains tax proposals? Yeah. And so just by way of comparison, you know, whereas the wealth tax is sort of a big, bold new idea and is not really adopted anywhere else. Um, uh, and so we would really be very a, a big, bold and social economic leader if we were to pass the wealth tax. Uh, the capital gains tax, quite frankly, we are trailing the rest of the nation. As you just said, we are one of only nine states that doesn't have it. Um, this will be the 10th year that the capital gains tax has been introduced in the legislature. Um, it is beyond time uh, that we pass it. Um, and again, it's another you know, progressive tool in the toolbox um, that seeks to, you know, it's an excise tax on the transaction um, of a sale of something like a stock or a bond. Um, and it's, it's just it's just over time. You know, and I think what's so challenging in all of this, and this is true for the wealth tax too, is I think folks get so focused on these bills as, you know, a means to an end, right? These are just taxes to raise money. But what I try to explain to folks is it's actually a matter of public policy and having better tools in the toolbox. You know, when we hit this economic crisis, and this is this was these were real conversations last year before the federal government jumped in, and again toward the end of the year, which when we weren't sure if the federal government was going to come come through. You know, as we all know, that last administration. They didn't want to get help to the American people in a timely fashion. And by the skin of our teeth, are we getting federal um, support? You know, in absence of that, the tools that we would have had to generate the level of money that we're talking about would have been sales tax. You know, like to gen I mean, we're going to do we're moving a step one, two point two billion dollar economic recovery package uh, right now through the legislature. And that's thanks to federal dollars by and large. In absence of that, we would have been increasing what sales tax to generate $2 billion like that. That's what I mean by we need better tools in the toolbox. The wealth tax is one option uh, that's big and bold and new and innovative. The capital gains is one that almost everybody else in the country has, and we are far overdue. And so I hope we'll pass it this year. You know, you, you mentioned a sales tax, which if you are trying to increase a sales tax during a time of lockdown, when people aren't out shopping, consuming as much, uh, it, it really doesn't make a, a heck of a lot of sense. Um, are there other progressive revenue proposals that we should be aware of? You mentioned the, the working family tax credit. Anything like the estate tax that's being considered this year? Any, any other things we should be aware of? I think I, I do expect to see these bills have not dropped yet, but I do expect to see um, other bills. Um, like an estate tax, we we've also had a couple bills that have been introduced. Uh, one that would narrow the tax preference on investment income, uh, investment income by um, organizations that are not investment firms. Um, so that's one example. Um, that's from Representative Cody. Uh, Representative Clova has introduced uh, a really really innovative uh, piece of legislation, which I think it's also really important for us to think about um, modernizing the tax code as well. The majority of our tax code, it was part of that Revenue Act of 1934 during a very different economy, not only an agrarian economy, but a, an economy that was really uh, goods-based when we've moved to a service-based economy. Um, so Representative Kloba has a le legislation on sort of creating a registry of and then a tax of data brokers, the folks that are actually transacting in our personal data and people are making money in our personal data right now. And that is just something because the legislature often trails innovation and trails changes in the economy. Um, you know, I, I say this often that we tax the, the we tax who we understand and we tax the industries we know. And when you have disruptive industries that come in, 
they oftentimes are allowed to exist for many years with little to no taxation, which creates real inequity for the other businesses in Washington state who end up disproportionately shouldering that you know, responsibility of funding community priorities while these new industries are not subject to tax. And so uh, it oftentimes takes us a little bit of time to catch up to them. Uh, and I think, um, in, in, again, in terms of trying to have parity and equity in the tax code on the business side as well, I think Representative Klobaugh's bill uh, does some good work there uh, towards modernizing uh, the uh, tax code. So those are a couple of other examples that I see out there. And you know, you're kind of talking around the edge of a larger philosophical question that I, I really want to ask you. Um, I read a January report from the Washington State Budget and Policy Center that shows that investing in communities with progressive revenue will create over 60,000 new jobs. It'll increase consumer spending by $4 billion. It'll grow the state's GDP by almost $6 billion. Politically, why is progressive taxation such a hard sell here in Washington? You know, I think for so many years, taxation has just been weaponized in political conversations, quite frankly. Um, and it's I think it's scary for a lot of people. It's also really complicated. And so I think a lot of times folks that are not comfortable and don't feel well versed in talking about tax policy um, shy away from talking about it at all, um, particularly because the message of no is no is a very effective message because it's simple. Uh, getting into nuances, it's a little bit harder to tell that story and a lot of folks don't feel comfortable. And so one of my big invitations of being on, on this podcast today is one of the benefits of us creating the tax structure work group is this incredible resource of background information on the tax code and tax policy. Um, a new website was just sort of the flip was the switch was just flipped. So if you go to taxworkgroup.org, it's very simple, taxworkgroup. Sorry, I said, as soon as I said it out loud, I'm pretty sure it's right. Well, I'll double check myself, taxworkgroup.org. <laughs> there is just background information, tons and tons and tons of background information. There's videos from past meetings, there's reports, there's analysis. And so we're trying to democratize knowledge in this process as well. And so I really encourage folks to like wait in and really start to educate yourself about tax policy here in Washington state so that you can help us in articulating why this is so important. You know, in the conversations I was having about wealth tax yesterday, and we were talking about economic activity. One of the things that I was reminded, um, you know, last year, um, again, because we are so sales tax dependent to your point earlier that when people are shuttered at home um, and businesses are closed, we lost a tremendous amount of revenue. And at one point, we're looking at an $8 billion deficit in the state budget because we had just had such a dramatic dip in sales tax. Um, at the November committee days in Olympia, in Olympia, virtual, um, we had Dr. Steve Lurch from our Economic and Revenue Forecast Council presented to our committee and showed us the original forecast post-COVID and how we had started to bounce back. One of the things that I asked him in that presentation was, hey, I see that that spike there that where we started to rebound. Um, any chance that was around the time of the stimulus checks from the federal government? And he immediately confirmed and said, that's right. Um, so it's a good story to tell about when those $600 checks came from the federal government and went into the pockets of people who really needed money in that moment to pay their rent and buy groceries, right? That money immediately went back into the local economy, and that's why we started to see revenue collections rebound. Something like the Working Families Tax Credit is the same thing. If you were able to, again, provide a credit against tax paid, 
and put another $500, for instance, per year back in the, the pockets of these working families, they're going to spend it in their local communities and they're going to spur economic activity. So as we think about reimagining, rebuilding and recovering from this pandemic uh, with our economy, tools like the Working Families Tax Credit are actually really effective tools for all of us, not just the people who receive uh, the tax credit itself. I, I'm hearing another nail in Milton Friedman's coffin uh, at this point. There was, a, there was a report that talked about, you know, 50 years later, it's like trickle-down economics doesn't work. You're like, yeah, no, it absolutely doesn't. And we've got proof right here in the state. Um, yeah, I'll ask you one other question. There are a number of new, more progressive members that have joined the legislature. We are very lucky to have people like Tawana Nobles and David Hackney, others. Do you feel like this changes the calculus around progressive legislation and progressive taxation legislation? Oh, absolutely. I mean, anytime you have changes um, in the legislature and people that came in very uh, boldly and openly supporting progressive revenue, that obviously goes a long way towards um, towards helping the cause. Um, and we've had quite a few new members come in. Again, I think people that understand that it's also a matter of tax policy, you know, and, and it's not just about raising money. I got to tell you, one other thing that somebody said to me yesterday was, you know, Revenue collections up, just like I was saying, right? Revenue collections up. Why do you need to pass new taxes right now? We've got plenty of revenue. And my response was, yeah, but on the backs of whom? Right? right. Yeah, we have revenue, but who's paying it? You as a small business owner who are barely keeping your doors open and struggling in this pandemic. Low-income people who are barely having enough money to put food on the table and keep a roof over their head. That's who is paying into that bounce back of revenue right now. Is that really who should be disproportionately shouldering that responsibility right now? I think most people would answer that as probably not, but those are the tools that we have in the toolbox today. And I think we have more people that have come into the legislature understanding that tools like capital gains allow us to start to shift that burden away uh, to folks that um, could more equitably share in that responsibility. It's it's hopeful. And I, I know that people listening, and as I said, we have a ton of resources for people to get involved uh, at, at any level uh, that they would like right now. And it's very important uh, that people do. Uh, so do check out the show notes at IndivisiblePodcast.org. I know you have a very busy day ahead of you. Before I let you go, I have to ask you, because you were on the Community and Economic Develop Development Committee, uh, Representative Drew Hansen just introduced a bill in that committee that would allow full public broadband for communities that currently don't have it. We have a lot of uh, so called broadband deserts here uh, throughout the state. And yeah. we know about the problems of inequity that that creates. This is something that indivisible groups are going to be tracking very closely here in the state. So I would just briefly love your thoughts as a committee member. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I got to tell you, as I think about kind of all things, taxes and revenue and economic and community development, um, I myself, I'm a I'm a community development consultant in my non-legislative life. Yes, legislators do have other jobs because we are a part-time legislature and do, um, as part of that work, uh, place-based economic development. And I will tell you, you know, when we think about Washington has the number one economy in the nation, you know, and obviously COVID, we're suffering a bit right now, but generally we've had a really strong economy here in Washington state. It is not success that is felt uh, uniformly across the state. Um, you know, I represent the 36th district, which is the northwest corner of the city of Seattle. My district at the most southern end literally cuts through the Amazon campus. Uh, we have other late major tech companies, including Facebook in the district. We're doing fine. We have tremendous 
uh, economic opportunity and very high internet speeds in my district. You go beyond the city of Seattle, you go to communities that are, you know, have main streets that have been shuttered, again, pre-COVID. You have children that are trying to go to school even before COVID were trying to do homework at night. And the access to broadband is it's so terrible because really, I mean, here's the reality. <sighs> broadband right now depends on private companies being willing to build out infrastructure. There are parts of the state where it simply does not pencil out for a private company to lay down infrastructure. We often call it last mile infrastructure. Um, and I think what we are reckoning with as a state is, is it acceptable any longer to leave what really, in my mind, should be a public utility in the long run? I mean, it's really gotten to that point. But in this moment right now, just thinking about the, the, the here and now, what we're talking about, is it appropriate to leave that last mile in particular entirely to the private market? Or do we as a state need to be thoughtful about investments that we could make, which would not only help our school children right now that are in this remote environment, but millions of people that are working from home. And even when we return to sort of regular way of life again, you know, what we could do to spur economic development in these areas, if small business owners could have more reliable internet connection. I mean, there are still people in the state with dial up, dial up folks like, I'm 40. Do you all remember AOL and the dial-up sound that you used to have? I'm in 52, the 90s, and I definitely right? do. Yeah, yeah, not not great yeah, service. I mean, there's people still have that, <laughs> and so so I also think, in, you know, there's so many things, and it's not. I should just say it's not just the broadband infrastructure, but it's also about you know one-to-one digital uh, device access to and, and big props to Representative Mia Gregerson, who's leading the charge on uh, equitable access uh, to those devices. Um, so that now and forever our children have better access to the tools they need to be successful in school. So that's legislation that is moving separate and apart from Representative Hansen's legislation. All important. Um, I'm all in. It's not it's not OK anymore that just districts like mine are economically successful. But central and eastern Washington, which I will say are not districts represented by Democrats, but we represent districts. But we serve the entire state and the entire people of Washington. This is one where. I think Democrats are leading and we want to bring economic opportunity to the rest of the state. I think this bill will help with that. Absolutely right. And, and in fact, in the run up to the election, we spoke with both Sharon Schum, Representative Sharon Schumake and now Representative Alicia Rule, who are up in the 42nd. Uh, and they have and they're both Democrats and they have plenty of broadband deserts up there. So it, it definitely cuts across the state. And this is something that we want to very much pay attention to as indivisibles. And so I will be keeping people abreast of that. 1336 is the bill number on that. Uh, you've given us so much of your time and so much of your expertise and your passion. And we, we honestly could be more grateful representative frame it's it's been a, a real pleasure thank you thank you so much for having me today and bringing uh, attention to the important issue of equity in our tax code i hope people will join me in the fight so as i mentioned we will have bill information for you in the show notes and if you would like to participate in the hearing for the wealth tax it is happening on tuesday february 2nd at 1 30 p.m and you can do it online so here's what you do and again this is going to be in the show notes go to app 
app.ledge.wa.gov slash CSI remote slash house. Again, that's app with two P's dot ledge.wa.gov slash CSI remote slash house. Then you choose finance as the committee. Choose February 2nd, 1.30 p.m. as the meeting slot. And then you select which bill to support. Now, Representative Frame represents selecting both the wealth tax, HB 1406, and the working families tax credit, that's HB 1297. And you can choose whether to submit written testimony, testify live, or have your position noted for the legislative record. If you do want to testify, please coordinate with Emily Parzabach with Balance Our Tax Code at Emily at balanceourtaxcode.com. Again, all of this is in the show notes at indivisiblepodcast.org. Our email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Colwell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.